0: If you grab your copy of God's Word and open up to Luke chapter 4, we're going to spend the bulk of our time today there. Would you stand with me for a moment and we're going to pray. This message, honestly, has been on my heart for a little bit because I just want to see people walk in freedom in Christ. I just want to see people experience the freedom that God has for them. And whether that is the sin problem of humanity or whether that is uh, related to hurts or hang-ups or heartaches or wounds, whatever the case. I just want people to experience the freedom that God has for you. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. We'll pick up in just a moment in Luke chapter 4. Would you pray with me as we go to the Word? Father, thank You for this moment together. Thank You for the opportunity to gather around Your Word Uh, Lord, I just pray in these moments I make much of you and that we are challenged to not only receive, but to respond. Help us to to take a step towards you in these moments, Lord. In any way, anything that's hindering or restraining us, Lord, that you want to free us from, Lord, do a work in us today. We invite your Holy Spirit to continue to transform us and we thank you for it. We give you these moments in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen. Amen. You can be seated. We'll pick up in just a moment in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. It would be sad to me, or shame even, for people to miss an opportunity for what they need, especially when that opportunity is standing right in front of them. You get what I'm saying? It would would be a shame when people can have an opportunity to really receive what they need, and yet they don't. Luke chapter 4, picking up in verse 14, the Bible says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised Him. Now, if you know in Luke's gospel, anything prior to this, you know that Luke writes about Jesus being baptized in the Jordan, then led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he was there for 40 days, tempted by the enemy, responded to Satan by saying repeatedly, it is written, quoting the truth of God's Word to him, and of course successfully battling that temptation, and then coming back in, basically launching back into his public ministry. Galilee was a region with multiple towns, or villages, kind of like the metro area. Uh, we're all quote-unquote part of the Twin Cities, but we all have kind of our separate communities too, but we're all part of the same area, the same region. Now Luke gives indication that this was the first stop that Jesus made after coming back from that wilderness experience. But actually, Luke kind of does something uncommon for his writing. He breaks chronological order to give an illustration of what happened in Nazareth, because what happens there is going to share so much about the purpose of Jesus and His ministry that's going to be seen going forward. Pick up with me in verse 16. Jesus went to Nazareth where He had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day He went into the synagogue as was His custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him, And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So, here's Jesus. Uh, Jesus was in his hometown, if you will, in the region of Galilee, in Nazareth. This is the place where he lived from the time he was a small boy until the time of his public ministry, which was about 30 years long. Now, it's interesting to note in Luke 4 that Jesus regularly visited the synagogues and was committed to that time of worship and public reading of Scripture and public teaching of Scripture. I just say this, Jesus had a pattern of being involved and being plugged into the synagogues, and I think it's so vitally important to remember that if Jesus had that pattern, how much more is it important for us to have that pattern of value for our times of worship and our times of reading of the Word and our times of preaching of the Word, our times even of public gathering. I think it's interesting that it, the, the custom for that day was that visiting rabbis would travel to different synagogues to teach. Uh, in, in the synagogue, there's a little debate over whether the readers would select their own passage from the prophets or if they were handed a scroll from one of the prophets in the Old Testament and then they could pick where to choose from. What typically would happen is in that synagogue moment, there would be a reading from the first five books of the Bible or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There'd be a reading from there, and then there would be a reading from one of the prophets of the Old Testament. And the reader would take that scroll and would unfold it, an entire book, an entire writing of the prophet or speaking of the prophet, if you will, from right to left, and they would find their desired passage of Scripture And they would stand up and they would read those verses of scripture, that passage, and then they were expected that they would sit down and teach or expound on what they'd just read. So, with that in mind, let's look in Luke 16, or excuse me, Luke 4, and see what Jesus did coming from quoting the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 61. Here's what Jesus said The Spirit of the Lord, verse 18, is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now let me show you a couple of things in this text. First of all, do you notice in what Jesus said that there is the presence of the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within these words? The Spirit... So the Holy Spirit of the Lord, capital L, Lord, is on me because He has anointed me to preach the good news. So the whole idea of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, is present throughout Scripture. And this just happens to be another spot where you can see it in the writing. Now, Jesus would do a lot of work in His earthly ministry. And He would do it by the work of the Holy Spirit in His life. He didn't operate it in his own. Jesus would say repeatedly, I didn't come on my own accord. I came because the Father sent me. I'm here to do the Father's business. I only do what the Father is telling me to do. And he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that work. And the purpose of Jesus was great. He said, I came to bring good news to the poor, not just financially poor, but we're talking spiritually poor, those lost in sin, to proclaim that captives will be released to proclaim that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. We understand, being on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that the greatest needs humanity ever had were fulfilled in the finished work of Jesus. He died and rose again so that there could be forgiveness of sin and spiritual salvation, so that there could also be freedom from the power of sin and that obligation or inclination we're born with to sin, freedom from the power of sin, freedom from Satan's power. He came to heal the blind, and we're talking a lot about yes, he healed physical blindness, but he also healed spiritual blindness. He opened eyes for people to see and understand God differently. He came to heal the wounded. He came to bring ongoing freedom and growth. And notice, Jesus said that He came to extend the grace of God or the year of the Lord to humanity. As Jesus quoted Isaiah 61, He stops short of quoting the entire passage. And if you go and read Isaiah chapter 61, you recognize that if you continue from this spot forward, there was judgment from God that was being told. It was coming. So what Jesus does in this moment is not to focus on the judgment. He focused on this is a season of grace. This is a season of opportunity that God wants to extend an invitation to people for them to know God and to be free from sin. Pick up in Luke chapter 4, verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll... He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And like normal, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Remember, the the person reading would then sit down and teach. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So when Isaiah 61 was given... It was a future focus of oppressor oppressed those oppressed being set free. It was also a talk of judgment of, of God because of people not listening to the Lord, not following his ways, not keeping their covenant. But it also spoke forward to Jesus. Much of the prophecy giving in the Old Testament, whether it's in the book of Psalms, or whether it's Isaiah, or whether it's Jeremiah, or whether it's others, they spoke forward to Jesus. So standing in front of them, reading from hundreds of years before, was the very one that Isaiah was talking about. Jesus was the fulfillment of every detail, of every promise of every prophecy that was given of a Messiah who would come, including this very one from Isaiah. How amazing would that be? For Jesus to stand in front of us and to read the history that foretold of Him coming, and He's right in front of you. But notice what happened in Nazareth, verse 22. All spoke well of Him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from His lips, notice what they said after that. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? So Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. So again, this gives us evidence that he'd been already to Capernaum before he came to Nazareth. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. This is not the only spot he would say that. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. He's connecting back to the Old Testament and back to history. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but instead to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman... The Syrian. Okay, so let me give you an understanding of what's going on here. This is Jesus' hometown. These people have watched Jesus from a small, from a young age grow up and serve with his earthly father, Joseph, most likely learning the trade of being a carpenter himself. They, they recognize Jesus as just this guy who'd grown up in their area. He wasn't a superhero. He had no special qualifications that indicated he was going to be a Messiah or a Savior of any kind. And and these people were aware that they lived under Roman oppression. And the government of Rome was very heavy on them. And there was assumption in their hearts and in their minds that when a Messiah figure would come, because they believed the Messiah would come, they just simply had it confused as to what his purpose would be. They thought, okay, he's going to come and he's going to free us from this Roman oppression and set up this government that's favorable to us immediately right here. And so when they took that into consideration and they looked at Jesus, they said, Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Isn't this the same one who's just grown up before our eyes? Isn't this Joseph's son? The familiarity of people with Jesus kept them from believing that he could do more than just be another human being. And Jesus knew that. He knew the conditions of their hearts. He knew their doubt. He knew they were curious But they weren't genuinely interested. So he goes one step further in Luke 4. And he says, okay, let me take you back to history. There have been other people who were Israelites, who were Jewish people, and God wanted to do a work in them and through them. But they didn't believe, and they didn't receive, and they wouldn't allow God to do His work. So instead, God did His work in other people's lives. And the people that God did the work in were people that were considered foreigners, or outcasts, or less than in society. So you can imagine in this moment in the synagogue, Jesus is making these people mad by basically saying, you've been rejecting the work of God all along. And because you've been rejecting the work of God and not receiving the Word of God, God chooses to do His work in other people, other people that you couldn't care less about. The people that you despise are the very people who are actually receiving Jesus and receiving the work of God in their lives. So, here's the people of Israel. They rejected the prophets, and then they also rejected Jesus. The two greatest means of God to speak to humanity. The prophets and Jesus. The the written word, if you will, and the living word. And they rejected both of them. So other people would receive Jesus and believe in Him because of their faith in Him, even when the people of Israel did not believe. So the offense with this people was not that God wouldn't work. They believed God would do something. They, They knew the words of the prophecies. It was that they didn't believe God's work was coming through this man named Jesus. Notice the response of the people, verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. They were so mad at what Jesus was saying They were so rejecting of Jesus and God's work coming through Jesus, they got mad at him, took him to the highest point in the city to throw him down, maybe even stoning him afterwards to make sure that he was dead. They were unusually angry. They were so angry with Jesus that they wanted to kill him, which, oh, by the way, this was the Sabbath day, so work wasn't even permissible, and murder was a violation of the law, but they were so angry they wanted to kill Jesus. And yet, somehow in this moment, I don't know how God did it. It's not explicitly stated. Maybe it was an invisibility cloak. Maybe it was a recognition of the people. And maybe it was a lack of His response and Him not entertaining the argument back and forth. But some way, somehow, in this moment, Jesus makes it through the crowd unharmed and carries on with His ministry and many other people would receive Him. This is why later people would be so upset about Uh, Samaritans, and any kind of Gentile, any non-Jewish person. But Jesus, if you study His ministry, He was good about going the extra mile to reach any and everyone, even the people that were ostracized and criticized in society. So, rather than receiving what Jesus came to do, these people rejected Jesus and wanted to kill Him. Now, I've been considering this passage and theme of freedom in Christ for a while, and I want to just suggest a few thoughts to you today. I want to suggest to you that first, Jesus came to bring freedom. Freedom. That's what he said. I came to set the captives free. I came to open blinded eyes. I came so that the good news would be preached to the poor. I came for people to experience freedom. What kind of freedom? Well, first, freedom from sin and the power of sin, that we would experience forgiveness and spiritual salvation. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2 says, These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Matthew 5, 3 puts it like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came so that anyone who would believe and anyone who would honestly and humbly come to him and say, I'm a sinner. I'm flawed. I'm broken. In and of myself, I will never measure up to God's perfection, to God's glorious standard. He came so that anyone who who would do that, who would come to Him and pray and admit their sinfulness could be saved and set free and lives could be changed. He came to free us from the power of sin as well. So it doesn't just mean that He came to forgive us of our sins past, but it means now we don't have to give way to that sinfulness in our lives. Let me explain it this way. Before Jesus in our lives, the only power we had at work in us is our own flesh, Our own humanness. And how many know we're broken? In ourselves, we're flawed. In ourselves, we're sinful. I've shared before, I have three daughters. Uh, One is 10, one is 6 now, and one is 2 years old. And I can promise you, the 2-year-old's got as much sin in her life as the 10-year-old. I mean, it doesn't take long before they're hitting each other and fighting over a toy, and there, there's something going on that somebody doesn't like. That that rebelliousness in our hearts, that that inclination to fight for ourselves and to be self-focused, and all of those things are evident in humanity even from a young age. But when we come to the Lord and we believe in Him and we admit we're sinners and we believe in Jesus and His finished work and we confess Him as the Lord of our lives, He He not only forgives our sin, but He frees us from the power of sin. So rather than just living in this flesh, living in our own way of doing life, now the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity Himself, dwells in our lives to help us live a life that aligns with the Word of God. Now this doesn't mean sinless perfection. I wish it did. I do. I wish when we got saved that there was a magic switch and it just switched us to a point that we no longer did anything wrong. Come on. That'd be, wouldn't that be much easier? We wouldn't have this fight, right? But we have this tension in us. But now instead of just being flesh and just humanity, we have the work of God going on in our lives to help us do the right thing, to help us live for truth, to help us follow Jesus, to not give in to sin and the devil and the world, but to live for God. And we no longer are obligated to do those things. Now by the help of the Holy Spirit, we can live a life unto Jesus. I think I think we need to be careful because sometimes our language of what we say uh, can speak to still living in a sinful state. For instance, I, I understand the phrase, but how many of you have ever heard this idea of a sinner saved by grace? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Anybody? Probably we've said it, right? Because we, what we're saying is we recognize without Jesus we wouldn't be saved. Without Jesus we wouldn't have forgiveness of sin and we wouldn't have eternal life. But in scripture, there is a moving from the status of sinner to a person who has believed in Jesus and been saved to the designation, this is in scripture, of saint. Now, you may not feel like a saint or look like a saint or act like a saint all the time. Don't touch your neighbor. But I can tell you that my point being, you have been changed. You have been put a new heart. You have new desires. You want to follow Jesus. And the Holy Spirit then helps you to live those desires for Jesus out. He helps you to live according to the Word. Again, we still got to live in this world and in this flesh, but there's a greater power at work in our lives that helps us to say no to sin, no to the enemy, no to the world around us, and yes to Jesus and to His Word. We can be free from sin and the power of sin. Secondly, we can be free from the power of the enemy, and one of the greatest powers of the enemy is the condemnation that comes in being a Jesus follower. The enemy likes to come along. Maybe he doesn't talk to you, but he talks to me sometimes, I think. And he likes to try to tell you, well, your past is just too complicated. Or you, you did too many wrong things in the past. Or, I, I just traveled. I, I drove several hours throughout this trip that we were on. How many of you have ever been to a place geographically and you were reminded of some stupid decision you made? when you lived there or when you were there. Come on, be honest with me. A lot of y'all are smiling, so you must have had that happen. And how many times can the enemy kind of... Try to not—it's not just thinking about it, but then the enemy trying to drive home. Well, that hasn't been forgiven, or somehow you're still you're still not good enough for God, or you failed too many times, or your past is too ridden with sin. And what Scripture teaches us is that when the enemy comes against us to try to tell us that that's the case, we can stand and say, according to Romans eight, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death no enemy when I repented of my sin and I believed in Jesus he saved me right then and anytime I've ever repented of sin he's forgiven me in that very moment I don't live there anymore you got the wrong address devil I'm in Christ I'm forgiven I'm free it's under the blood of Jesus freedom from that And I tell you, a lot of people deal with that. A lot of people deal with that. A lot of Jesus followers deal with their memory of the past and with the memory of previous sin and with what life was like before Jesus. And the enemy wants you to live there. But God said, we're free. We're free. There's freedom from the ultimate curse of sin. Freedom from death. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all will be made alive. If you live long enough in this life, you're going to recognize that unless Jesus takes us out of this world in a, in a rapture, we're going to all face the appointment with death. We're going to have to deal with it. I mean, we can we can start to recognize things are happening like that in our everyday life because the older we get, how many will be honest? The older we get, the more we realize we're decaying. We were we were in Illinois visiting my wife's family this week. I kid you not, and <clears throat> their grandfather, my wife's dad, bought them a. A wristband to ride fair rides, first mistake. And we, we're out there and you ride them for, you know, three or four hours and they go between rides because the wristband pays for all of the rides you want. And I remember towards the end of the night standing by the little mini car track for younger kids and Aubrielle had finally said, yeah, I want to ride in the car and drive the little steering wheel. And she's going around. And I'm standing there and thinking, how did I dislocate my hip tonight at the fair? It is hurting so bad from standing up so long. What am I doing wrong? Seriously. The older you get, the more you realize the aches and the pains and the body just doesn't do. Your mind may be there fully, but your physical body doesn't have the same strength, doesn't have the same capability. We begin to recognize in our humanity that this body isn't meant to live forever. And that's where the promise and work of Jesus come in so wonderfully. We can be free from the fear of death. We can be free from being afraid of death. We can see death as Jesus followers, as just a doorway right on into heaven. So when we get to that point of death, yeah, it may be a little bit ugly and there may be some things that happen that none of us would like, the, the product of the curse of sin on our world, but yet we can face it with the confidence that when we take our last breath here, we'll take our next breath cons- consciously pre- with the Lord and we do not have to fear that moment we live in that confidence in God we live knowing that the curse of sin has been broken meaning its consequences have been broken off of our lives as well and then also Jesus came to bring freedom and this goes maybe even a little deeper especially in the life of a Jesus follower the freedom from hurts and wounds in our lives The Bible says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those those who are crushed in spirit. And several chapters later, Psalm 147, 3, He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds. And in preparation for this message, I couldn't help but get the sense in my heart That there could be someone either in this room or online who your issue is not the the sin thing. It's not not the condemnation thing. You're, You're recognizing there's freedom from sin, freedom from the consequences of sin, freedom from fear and death, all those things. Your struggle is that something happened to you somewhere along the way and you're still carrying that wound in your life. And because you're carrying that, you're basically pulling along the extra weights and hindrances and even baggage into your present and future future that even it, it could be something that happened 30 years ago and you're still dealing with it today Jesus doesn't want you to live there It doesn't mean that you disregard what happened. It doesn't mean that that didn't change how you make decisions in your life, that that it doesn't change how you have healthy boundaries in a relationship. We could go on and on and on. But it does mean that you're free from the cage and the bondage and the prison cell of living in a place of offense and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and carrying that weight and that burden. How many prisoners in their right mind if somebody came up to them today and turned the key and opened the door and told them to go free, how many prisoners would stay in the cell? Jesus is saying, I've made it possible for you to be free. You can be healed, you can be whole, you can have the power to get past whatever this is in your life. When when I say let it go, I'm not saying let it go in your own power. I'm saying to you today that God can help you to release those things In your life. There's freedom. Secondly today, not only did Jesus come to bring freedom, Jesus came to bring freedom to all people. And so whether we're talking about sin and the power of sin, or whether we're talking about condemnation, whether we're talking about the ultimate curse of sin and death, or whether we're talking about freedom from hurts and wounds, Jesus came to bring freedom for all people. Red and yellow and black and white and rich and poor and everything in between. There's no past too big, no sin too powerful, no hurts too deep and great that Jesus can't change your life. Period. So here's the question that I keep coming to as I've been thinking of this passage, because here's Jesus. He's the one who came to bring freedom to the captives, and he's standing before this people, and fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, and yet they reject him. And I wonder today, how many people are walking in some form of bondage or captivity when they don't have to be. I've put it this way. Are some Jesus followers saved but not free? See, I believe Jesus came to bring wholeness to our lives. One writer said it this way, Jesus' ministry on earth and Jesus' ministry in general was designed to meet every human need. Every human need. It's interesting because we believe in Jesus and we believe in the scriptural narrative about Jesus. We recognize the historical accounts of Jesus' work, his finished work. We recognize the significance of his work to our spiritual lives. We call on him. We confess that he's Savior and Lord. We believe that God raised him from the dead. We confess with our lips that he's Lord of our lives and we believe in those moments that God has forgiven us and freed us from anything of our past. We believe God takes care of the sin issue. In that moment, in that moment of salvation, we're believing God for the greatest need we could ever have in our lives. And if He can do that, if He can do what only He can do, and we believe Him to be free from sin and have the promise of eternal life, what else can He do in our lives? I mean, we're, we're believing Him for the, the whole thing here with salvation. And yet we hold on to all of these pieces in our lives. And Jesus said, wait a minute, I freed you from sin and I've given you salvation and eternal life. How much more can I deal with all of those little things? I say little thing. They're big things, but they're little things in the grand scheme compared to salvation. How much more can God help us to be free from those things in our lives? What happens after we pray the sinner's prayer and believe in Jesus and confess we're sinners and that He is Lord and are saved? Here's what I want to get across. I hope that you'll hear me today. Uh, I've said it before, but I want to repeat it. Salvation is the beginning of life as a Jesus follower. Salvation is the beginning. Someone say beginning. Say it one more time. Beginning. Salvation is the beginning of a life as a Jesus follower. That isn't the wherewithal, that isn't the one moment when we decide to follow Jesus. We're opening our lives up to the greatest, abundant, full life in Christ that He died to give us. There's so much more that He wants to do. Let me show you in Scripture, uh, with a a very familiar verse of Scripture, the proof that it's it's not just salvation, but that's the beginning of what He wants to do. Philippians 1.6. The Apostle Paul said, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue His work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Notice this. I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, So even before salvation, the Holy Spirit is convincing us, convicting us of our need for God. And then there's the the rebirth or the regeneration. We call it salvation, okay? When we confess Him as Savior and Lord, confess that we're a sinner and believe in Him. So there's the good work He began. That's salvation. Then He will continue His work. That's the scriptural work of sanctification or this progressive ongoing process of our lives, our thinking, our behavior, our words, becoming more like Jesus. We're on a growing track, right? Hopefully we are. He will continue his work, how long? Until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So there's salvation, there's sanctification, there's glorification. We were saved, we're being saved, we will be saved. There is this ongoing process of work. Salvation, He began the good work, is just the beginning. Just the beginning. There's so much more that God wants to do. There's this ongoing process in our lives of pruning and refining and transforming And it happens the rest of our life on earth. I said earlier, I wish we were just perfect when we got saved. But truly, the graciousness and mercy of God is the fact that He saves us, knowing there are a bunch of layers within us that need to be peeled back. Knowing that we aren't perfect. That we're still going to blow it sometimes, and we still got some things going on in our hearts that need to be changed. I think of an onion. Anybody like to eat onions? You really like onions back there in the back. All right. So we have this rule in our family, in our marriage, that if Amber is going to eat onions, she lets me know. That frees me to know a couple of things. Number one, when I go to kiss her later, there's going to be some onion breath. I'm amazed. Same thing happened first service. Everybody got dead quiet like, wait, our pastor kisses his wife? Like, this is not a newsflash. I have three kids. I mean, things happen. You know what I'm saying? So so I know I'm going to have onion breath, and secondly, it lets me know I might as well go ahead and eat onion too. Because it's, like, it's not like, I mean, I'm going to get onion one way or the other. You see what I'm saying? I think about the layers of an onion. If you've ever cooked with an onion and you bought a whole onion, you know that it's, it's kind of in layers. And as that onion is cut... Uh, there 's beginning to be more and more of a revelation of just how stinky it is. How many's ever cut an onion and you started having these little wet spots in your eyes, crying and tearing up. I think about that onion when I think about the ongoing work of God after salvation because it's after salvation that He begins to peel back these layers and it's like He takes it a layer at the time. My goodness, if God dealt with everything in our lives that needed to be fixed at one time, we'd be in trouble He he saved us knowing there's a lot of layers and He peels back these layers and with each layer there comes a revelation of just how sinful we can be on our own and just how hurt we've been or just how painful things have been. And there can be some smell to it and there can be some tears to it. But it's the work of God in our life bringing freedom from things that don't belong in us. I would say it this way. Too many Jesus followers walk around carrying too much stuff that Jesus wants to free us from. Too many Jesus followers are living below the level of life and freedom that Jesus intended. If you define freedom, freedom is defined very simply as without restraint or without hindrance. This idea that nothing is impeding process and progress. Uh, The the idea that there's nothing stopping, there's nothing dragging you down. Uh, I think of runners. I don't run, but I think of them a lot. (laughs) I think of them as I drive by on the road. And I think I've even said out loud, with my windows up, not down, I think I've even said out loud, good for you, man, Keep keep running. If you see me running, you should run. Because that means I'm convinced that something's chasing me I can't take. Hey, I commend you if you run, that's great. But I think about runners, and I think about, without having done much of it, I think about all the things they take into consideration, whether it's a sprint or whether it's a long run, a marathon, all the things they take into consideration, what's going to weigh them down, what's going to create drag and resistance to them running, what's going to change the aerodynamics. I mean, you think of swimmers in the Olympics, same thing, some of the practices and patterns and behaviors that they do leading up to those moments. It all has to do with, how does it lighten me up to make sure I can keep going faster than everybody else so that I can endure, right? So the idea of freedom is to not have restraint, to not have hindrance, to not have anything bogging us down, to not keep carrying baggage from whenever it was in the past or sinful things or condemnation or wounds and hurts, to not carry those things in the present and the future that actually limit what God wants to do through us. John 10.10, Jesus said, The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the one opposed to you, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly or have it to the full. And and I don't know what you think about when you think about life abundantly or life to the full, but I can say this much. I don't think it's walking around with a bunch of burdens and hindrances on our lives when we can be free. Free. So... Why do Jesus' followers live below the level of freedom that Jesus intends? Let me give you four things real quick and we're going to wrap up. Number one, Jesus' followers, if not careful, will go back into the sin that they've been freed from by God. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. If God has set you free, don't put that burden back on your life. You say, well, I'm weak and I'm human and I've got these struggles, I've got this temptation. We all have temptations. In fact, Scripture says there is no temptation that has come over you that is not common to man. We're all going to deal with temptation. It's one thing to be following Jesus and be tempted. It's another thing to deliberately give your life back to that way. And so the Apostle Paul to the Galatians says, don't go back to thinking, and in that context it was, don't go back to thinking, number one, that you can save yourself and that somehow you can earn yourself away to God by doing all of these things that the law has because you can't keep the law. The law proved we're imperfect. Okay? And then secondly, don't get tied up again to the sin you've been freed from. And I think there's some practicality here. There's, there's our personal self-will, and there's the help of the Holy Spirit. The self-will part is, and I'll use the same example I used earlier today, if someone in this room has been set free from alcoholism and is no longer an alcoholic, then they will not go back to the places to hang out with their alcoholic buddies. It's, it's a practical thing. We don't put ourselves back in the environments, back in the friend circles, back into those things to have to face those things. We don't create temptation ourselves, right? We're going to face temptation, but let's not throw ourselves back into the wolves here. You with me? So there's a little bit of self-will, and then there's the help of the Holy Spirit. He's always going to lead us in truth. He's always going to lead us by the Word of God. He's always going to help us to say no to self, no to the world, no to sin, no to the enemy, and yes to Jesus and His Word. If, if you believe that you cannot say no to sin, you are actually contradicting the Word of God. I don't mean that we never have a flaw. I don't mean that we never fall short. I think we all still fall short. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying this idea that we can get into a moment of temptation and not have enough power to face it, that's false. The Scriptures declares that that Holy Spirit is at work in us now, and He helps us to overcome those things. And I'll tell you, sometimes it's a progressive journey. It's, it's not always that everybody gets saved in that moment they no longer have a struggle with any of that temptation. Sometimes it takes some time, and it takes the work of the Holy Spirit pruning and bringing out fruit in our lives. And you look back in months or even years, and you say, you know, that thing I used to struggle with, that thing I used to be tempted by, it's not the same in my life anymore. God has been bringing freedom to me from these things. So we don't want to go back to the sin we've been freed from. Secondly, we need to understand that proximity compared to intimacy with Jesus are two different things. In our text today, people heard Jesus, they were around Jesus, they took residence in the synagogue when it was the day to do so, and they could probably have likely shared much of the Old Testament. And yet they wouldn't yield to Him Many did not truly follow Him with their hearts and lives. Many were never transformed by the power of God. They were near Jesus in proximity, but they weren't with Jesus in intimacy. If we're only in proximity to Jesus, we'll know about Jesus. We would be around other people who know Jesus. We can hear messages like this. We can even know what it looks like for religious exercise. But if we're intimate with God, if we have an ongoing close relationship with Him... We can't remain the same. God loves us so much that He refines and He prunes and He takes us through the tests and trials of life to help us learn and to grow and to trust Him more and to have greater faith in Him. We recognize as we walk with Him in a deep relationship that He loves us in a way that no one else ever could. And when we recognize that love and experience His care and His shepherding in our lives, we yield to Him. We want more of Him. We invite Him to transform our lives. There comes a point in our journey where we see God in such a Way that we say, God, take everything out of me that doesn't belong. Change me. That comes through intimacy, not just proximity. What does that mean in a practical moment like this? That means if we just come in and go through the motions, sing the songs, hear the message, give in the offering, and walk out and maybe say hello to a few folks, that can be proximity if we're not careful. Intimacy is, Lord, whatever your word is saying today, search me and know me. And if there's anything in me that offends you, if there's anything in me that is contrary to what you're saying today, Lord, change me. Change me. Those intimate moments of worship and prayer in the word. Number three. I think Pastor Nick brought this up so wonderfully last week but one of the maybe perhaps the reasons why uh Jesus followers cannot be fully free the way God intends is because we refuse to admit we have issues. Pastor Nick did an awesome job last week talking about embracing our weaknesses and and when when we're talking about embracing our weaknesses that doesn't mean we carry them as a badge, right? It doesn't mean that we hold on to unhealthy baggage. It doesn't mean that we make ourselves out to be victims for the rest of our lives. And even even good things can cause us to refuse to admit we have issues. Even things like success in life, success in career, affluence in this life. These things can make us think that somehow we can do things on our own. Well, I did this so I can do that. So we come to this place where we really don't acknowledge our weaknesses and yield to God for that ongoing work. Uh, you know this, but the first step to solving a problem is admitting you have one. Right? If I want to be free, i got to first deal with the reality that I'm not. i got to declare, what is this prison in my life that God wants me to be free from? Where am I staying that He wants me to leave? Refusing to admit we have issues. We have to deal with an honest, humble way before God and say, God, this is where I'm at. This is the sin. This is the hurt. This is the hang-up. This is the habit. This is the heartache. This is the wound. We could go on and on and on. But dealing with it honestly, because God already knows, and dealing with it humbly, God, I thank you that you're so gracious that you even allow me to come into your presence knowing that there's this shrapnel in my life. And yet you allow me to come close to you and you deal with this and you remove it and you free me. And lastly, there's something about familiarity that can actually be dangerous in our lives. I I see... Husbands and wives sometimes struggle with familiarity. You live with someone long enough and you kind of get in your patterns and, and so people are so familiar that they, they don't date the same way. They don't show love the same way. They don't express encouragement the same way. And those things can, can fade. And sometimes I wonder if Jesus' followers have heard it all before and so we kind of go on like we're not hearing anything new. Hey, You're right. Jesus wants to free us from sin. Jesus wants to heal my wounds and my hurts. Yeah. Great. We hear of freedom, but we don't realize our own issues. We hear of freedom, but we think it's somebody else who really needs it. We don't want to acknowledge sin. We don't want to acknowledge our struggles. We don't want to acknowledge our heartaches and our hangups and our worries and our doubts and our fears. We've lived in this, this bondage, this cage for so long that we don't even think, realize we need freedom. It's just normal. And all along, God is saying, hey, I got some things in your life. I want to I wanna take them out. I want to remove these things. I want to help you walk in a greater freedom than what you're walking in right now. I don't even know that this is all of the conversation. I I don't know today that we've unpacked everything there is to say on this topic of Scripture. But what I do know is Jesus, just like He did in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, is standing before you offering freedom to the captives if you'll take advantage of the opportunity. He will bring freedom. He will bring healing. He will bring forgiveness. He will bring you out of that bondage, out of that prison cell. He will lead you in the way of freedom freedom I want to ask you today would you stand with me if you're in the room hmm. I'm going to ask you today if you will would you would you bow your heads would you close your eyes and we don't do this every week but this week we do it because we just want you to be able to focus on you and God in these moments. We don't want you to be distracted. We don't want you to be caught up in anything that might go on around you. We just want you to be caught up in what God is saying to you right now. Give God the space. Give Him the opportunity to work in your life today. In a few moments, I'm going to pray for you and Pastor Nick's going to sing a song and while he's singing this song, leading us in this time of response and worship, you're going to have an opportunity to step towards the Lord today. Maybe it's in this altar area, this this front of the auditorium where you can come and it's just you and God and you're showing the Lord, hey, I'm going to step towards you and step towards freedom in you. I'm going to bring whatever this issue is in my life. Maybe today it's at your seat where you're kneeling And you're saying, God, I need you right now. I need that freedom that only you can bring. But in whatever way you respond, it's about honesty and humility. God, this is what's going on. Thank you for allowing me to be in your presence and being so gracious and merciful. Would you change me? Would you transform my life? Would you continue to free me of anything that doesn't belong? Today, you can run to God You can run to Him and bring whatever it is and experience freedom. He came to set captives free. Whether it's sin and you know you're not right with God, whether it's that condemnation we talked about, whether it's burdens and wounds and hurts, fears, doubts, you name it, bring whatever it is today to the Lord. Let Him work in your heart and life and bring freedom. What would happen if we yield to God and believe Him for the freedom He promised? You could be forgiven and set free from sin and the power of sin, freed from the power of the enemy, freed from hurts and wounds and baggage. I'm going to pray for you today and then I challenge you to do something with what God is saying and respond. And let God set you free. Father, thank you for your word. We run to you today with our lives. We run to you today with hurts, with hang-ups, with habits, with heartache. We run to you today with sin. We run to you today with condemnation. We run to you today in our weakness. Declaring we need you, O Lord. We run to you today... So that the door of our captivity be flung wide open and we can walk free. Not carrying baggage, not pulling weights and resistance, but Lord, truly being free. Change us. Shape us. Mold us. I pray, Lord, you bless and keep this people and make your face to shine upon them. I pray, Lord, you'd be gracious to them. I pray you turn your countenance ever in their direction and grant them your peace. I pray, oh God, in these moments there be freedom.